If you have a copy of God's Word this evening, could you turn with us please to Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Prayer is a a precious exercise. Certainly true that at times we we see the face of God more in prayer than in any other times of our lives. He shows himself, he reveals himself, makes himself known to us. And we have been given consideration to the subject of prayer over recent times as we've been working our way through Luke chapter 11 and we continue in dealing with this. We've given the opening 11 verses the overarching title, A Class on Prayer with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. He is instructing his people. So let's read again from verse 1 and we will read the opening 13 verses. Luke chapter 11 verse 1. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive every one that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine and his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his precious word. Let's pray. God, give help in these moments. Our flesh is frail, and we need help in prayer as well as in receiving the word. We ask that thou wilt give aid in these minutes. Make this a profitable time. Make this to be a little season that helps sanctify us and teach us thy mind 
and enables us to be what Thou hast called us to be. So take away distraction, take away the frailness that we experience and give us that alertness and focus and love for the Word that makes us receive it humbly. So God, come and save those without Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one thing that most of us can acknowledge, with relative ease, I would imagine, it is our weakness in prayer. I doubt that if I was to talk with any of you individually, that you would boast of your skill, of your power, of your ability in the place of prayer. You may be able to tell me much about other achievements and tell me how you're head of your class and other subjects and areas, how you are one of the most well-known or best in other aspects of your employment or wherever you find yourself. But I very much doubt when it comes to prayer that you would be bragging about your ability. We have weakness in terms of our strength in prayer. We have weakness in terms of our knowledge in prayer. We have weakness in terms of our measure of faith in prayer. And in many other ways, we can acknowledge our weakness. In the context, in verse 1 of chapter 11, we're told again of our Lord, who is praying, and one of his disciples waits until he stops and then asks the question, Lord, teach us to pray. He desires this instruction that the Lord would give them help in this exercise. In Matthew chapter 9, I was thinking about this, in Matthew chapter 9, we're told that the Lord, at the end of that chapter, speaks of the great need for laborers. He reminds his disciples that there's a tremendous need, and there's a harvest, and the laborers are so few. And putting that before them, presenting that matter, immediately then we're told in the very next chapter, when we read of this harvest and the laborers being few, Reading on into chapter 10, we, we are told, when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power and so on. It's, it's as if he, he presents this tremendous need, and then the, the response to that need is answered immediately. As I thought about that, I wondered. I wondered if in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not told its length, we're not told about its content, we're not told about its fervor, but I wonder if he was actually praying to the Father to take the disciples a little further on in their experience of prayer. He was aware of their weakness. He was conscious of their inability. That he recognized the need for further growth in this particular spiritual discipline and was praying that they would desire to grow. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but it wouldn't be unlikely. For one of the disciples comes immediately. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us. We really need help in this matter. We have looked at the opening four verses already. We have looked at the chief example of prayer, verse 1. We've considered the central elements of prayer in verses 2 through 4, which is largely what we know as the Lord's Prayer. We come now to verses 5 through 10, the committed exercise of prayer the committed exercise of prayer. And it's very simple. The language of this, in contrast to what we've already dealt with, and all that could be mined out of the 
uh, elements of prayer, that is the content of prayer that is given in verses 2 through 4, we come to a portion that is, is so simple to understand. There's nothing complex about this at all. Let's read it again. Verse 5. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, uh, in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. It's not hard to understand these words. But there's so much to it that we don't understand. So tonight, as we look at this, the committed exercise of prayer, let's think of it very simply. First of all, considering it is an exercise in which hope is warranted. It is an exercise in which hope is warranted. In these verses, Christ illustrates in an unmistakable fashion that man has a part in prayer. That he is called to a duty of prayer, and it is part of what God would have him do. We all know that God is sovereign. At least, I would say, the vast majority in this congregation tonight are very aware of the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control. He does whatever pleases Him. And no man can say unto Him, What doest thou? And so on. We, we understand that. We get that. But one of the challenges of that is, well, where comes in, or, or how does it, does it fit in the, the, the activity of man, the responsibility of man, the, the way in which man is, is, is praying? How does that influence, if at all, God and his activity and so on? And there are aspects of that that, that we can't fully comprehend, that we can't enter into or fully grasp. The simple fact, however, is the Bible is plain that God is sovereign and plain The man must pray. And that in his praying, it works or functions as a means to accomplish the ends that God intends. In this passage, the point is simple. It is to encourage believers to keep seeking for matters of concern, no matter what. Keep seeking. In the illustration given, Jesus contrasts the believer's experience to drive the point home. I think there's an element of contrast intended here. So, for example, we are to learn, as we look from verse 5 and following, that God, that we come to in prayer, is not just a friend, He is a Father. So there's been an emphasis. Verse 2, our Father. Go down to verse 13, again, your Heavenly Father. Here we're told, which of you shall have a friend and shall go on to Him? So we're meant to see here, it it could have said, and it does go on to the fact that we go to our Father and we ask for things and He will give. In this particular portion, however, it refers to a friend. We go to a friend. And we're meant then to understand a distinction. That in going to God, we're not merely going to a friend, we're going to a Father. And therefore there can be an expectation, or the word that we're using here is that of hope that the response will be different. Our friends may love us. They may care for us. A friend loveth at all times. But 
it's different. Oh, it's also different to know not just that you have a friend, but you have a father. A good father. A father that is tender and desires to respond to the needs of his children. That, of course, is developed later on. But I, I want you to see that. I want you to see that there's a sense of contrast right there. You're not coming to God as a friend merely. You're coming to God as a father. Therefore, there is that sense of, of that relationship and indeed obligation of fatherly care. That in covenant with his children, with his people, he is obligated to respond. And I say that carefully, understanding he is God. And we're sinful, but He has entered into covenant that through Jesus Christ, He has made us His children and has given us the right to call Him Father, not on grounds of our own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. And we come to Him, therefore, with hope. He is our Father, not merely a friend. We also here to learn that God is not a man. He is a creator. The friend here... He is cumbered with the same limitations of, of all men. He has to go to bed. And he comes to him at midnight. This is a time that isn't most conducive to receiving help. And he comes, he almost wakes the whole house here, and the friend has to acknowledge, well, this is really, this is not an appropriate time. Everyone's in bed. Don't trouble me now with this matter. But this is not the one you come to in prayer. You don't come to one who has seasons or times when he's, when he's asleep. Now, it's interesting that Scripture sometimes uses language as if God is asleep, as if God needs to be awakened, but of course we know that's not true. Psalm 121, verse 5, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't need sleep. He is constantly active, constantly aware, constantly able to hear and respond. Also, the God you come to in prayer is not reluctant. He is willing. I'm told in verse 7 when he responds, his friend says, Trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. There's a reluctance here. He's not willing to upset all that has taken place. I mean, <laughs> you know what life's like, how hard it can be to get the children to bed and then get them to sleep. I mean, it's not easy. Those of you who are parents, and especially parents of small children, you're, you're well aware of the challenges of that. It takes time. How many times you have to tell them, go and get ready, get your pajamas on, brush your teeth, and go in there and you have to read the stories to them and pray with them. And oh, there's a whole process that goes on getting little children ready to go to sleep. And of course, that's all that leads up to the time that it takes for them to actually fall asleep. So this man has gone through all of that. He's gone through whatever the preparatory measures are to get the children into bed and get them to sleep and so on and get them settled at least. And this, this, this friend comes, and it's, there's this reluctance. He doesn't want to come to his aid. This is not the God you come to. This is not the God you pray to. The contrast is meant to be understood. No matter how difficult or delayed the matter may be, we are encouraged that waiting on God is more hopeful than waiting on men. We are to be more hopeful as we wait on God 
than in any context where we might wait on men. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. There's a point here I wish to drive home. When it comes to being hopeful, as we give ourselves to the exercise of prayer, there are two aspects that seem to play a very key role in terms of hopefulness in our hearts. And there may be more to it than this, but this is something I've always observed and it always has been instructive to me. And I say it right out before we read the passage here. It is when we come to God with something that is specific and personal. Specific and personal. The remarkable answers to prayer, the hope that believers possess often correlates with the fact that what they're bringing to God is personal and specific. The example I turn you to here in Matthew 15 verse 21 is no doubt familiar to you, but I want you to see this. I want you to see this worked out, that what the Lord is teaching in our passage in Luke 11 is reflected here. Matthew 15 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. There is a a hope that is in her heart here. She comes to Jesus Christ, but she she comes with something very personal and very specific. Beloved, when it comes to matters of prayer, the perseverance is difficult in generalities. The context of what our Lord is dealing with here deals with, and you see it in the, the illustration that is given with the man coming to a friend. He is moved by something that is very personal and very specific. A friend has come to him. He feels the need to show hospitality to him despite the hour of the night. And so he feels this very personally himself. This is a personal responsibility that is weighing upon him and it is very specific. When he comes to his friend at specific, give me three loaves. And so when we think of this whole subject and the hope that we ought to possess when we come to God, it is often, not just in this general way, though we should be hopeful at all times for everything we pray for, but especially when we think of those matters where there's a certain delay, where it feels like God may not be answering immediately, that we have the spirit of this woman, this woman of Canaan, who will not take no for an answer. Now, we will develop that idea of perseverance and persistence later on. But just to get this point, that of all the illustrations 
that correlate with the instruction of Luke 11, 5 through 10, it seems that it is always this, this personal and specific aspect that, that they are hopeful that God is able to address them in their specific and personal need. And He does. Marvelously, time and time again. So, it is an exercise in which hope is warranted. We see it all through the Scriptures. Secondly, it is an exercise in which the cross is crucial. Now, we don't have any reference directly in this passage to the cross, but there's something I want you to understand. If you turn to John, uh, James chapter 5, you may not need to, you may know the passage, but in James chapter 5, I made mention of it recently when we were dealing with uh, the life of Elijah. But in James 5.16, we're told, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effectual, fervent prayer. Now, we read that in a way that we think effectual and fervent are two distinct words. But they're not. It's one word. And what is interesting is that the Greek word here is usually translated work or worketh or whatever, some form of work. And in most cases, it fits there very nicely. It, it just, it just sl- slides right in there. But here it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't easily fit. The work prayer, the working prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't, it doesn't give the sense. So that's why it's translated as it is. Vine's dictionary notes the difficulty of translating this word, particularly in James 5.16. And he says, here the meaning may be, quote, in its inworking, in its inworking, that is to say, in the effect produced in the praying man, bringing him into line with the will of God, as in the case of Elijah. So as I amused over that and sought to understand what he was saying and what other sort of dictionaries were intending with this word or showing about this word, it seems to be that, well, let's think of Elijah. There was, there was a force working in Elijah that made him pray as he prayed. We're told specifically, he's just an ordinary man. A man of like passions, like you and me. In other words, of himself we're not to expect anything extraordinary. We don't expect extraordinary things from ourselves. And we're not to look to Elijah or any other man in Scripture and imagine, except for Jesus Christ, that there's something extraordinary about them. They're just fallen men. But there was, a, there was a power, there was an energy that was working, propelling, driving Elijah. And this force that operates in men is despite natural weakness. Elijah's just a man, but something operated in him that drove him to pray with unusual commitment and fervor so that he is praying to shut up the heavens. I mean, this isn't just some simple prayer that you might wonder, well, well, did it really get answered? I mean, he's praying that the heavens stop giving rain. And he has a sense that God is using him, actually, to determine that by his word, the heavens stop. And the heavens open again through prayer. 
So what is it? What is it that is driving Elijah? The difficulty with Elijah is that we are given no backstory at all. But I think if we look at other scriptures, we get an understanding. First turn to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Verse 2. Hear the psalmist in Psalm 141. And I want you to follow me here. I want you, I want you to understand why is it that some are driven to pray in this way? What is it that moves them? It is not something found in the flesh. That, that's what I'm trying to eliminate. I don't want you to go away from this place tonight and imagine, I need to try harder. I just need to make resolutions and try as hard as I can to be more persistent in prayer. It won't work. It won't work. That's trying to force it from without. It needs to be something, a principle that drives from within and is gospel-oriented. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Some think the psalmist here is cut off from worship, and so he is, he is wanting God to respond to his prayer as if he was there in the temple and able to offer the sacrifices and so on. But I don't think that's necessary. But whatever the case, what he's asking here is this. The incense arose before God. And the incense typified prayer. And the incense only arose. It only arose. Listen. It only arose when the coal from the altar was added to that incense. It's that which ignited the incense and caused the smoke. Here is the point. And what he is praying, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. He is recognizing that prayer is, is moved and motivated by the ignition, as it were, the fire of atonement, of sacrifice, of the work of Jesus Christ. It's when, well, the incense, as it were, would just sit there and do nothing. It has to have the fire from the altar. It has to have the coal to cause the smoke to arise. It has to have the motivating principle of the finished work of Christ to drive you in the place of prayer. That's what motivates you. The man who is persistent in prayer is persistent because he keeps his gaze on the finished work of Christ. The man who keeps calling upon God is because he knows he has acceptance before God through Christ. The man who doesn't let up is filled with a sense of his position before God because of Christ. That's what moves him. Turn to Ezra chapter 9. As I say, I can, I'm trying to show you this not through one particular individual, but by pulling scriptures together, we may see something of what it is that moves man to pray. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra is brought to mourn over the intermarrying of the Jews. And you read it there, in verse 1, 
They've been mixing themselves. They've taken daughters that they, for their sons that they shouldn't be. You look at the middle of verse 2. Mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Now note verse 3. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Then what happens? And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up onto the heavens, and so on and so forth. But do you see when? Do you see when? Do you see when it was that the sorrow is moved to supplication? Where the man begins to intercede and appeal before God? Do you see that? You can see it in the life of Daniel. I'll not turn there, but you see it there as well. And he is praying and he is seeking God, and he opens his window, and he faces Jerusalem, and he is doing so at the time of the morning, the evening sacrifice. He is, he, is, he is envisioning what he would be doing. The sacrifice should be taking place there. And that is motivating. It's his focus. It is his focus on the atonement that moves him to pray without ceasing. Now, I say all of that because the danger of Luke 11, go back there, is that we understand the aspect of persistence, which we'll get to in just a moment. But we do so detached from what it is that moves men to pray. Dear believer, don't try, do not try, sands the cross to motivate yourself to seek God. If you want to desire to pray, don't just simply kind of give yourself to a season of prayer. Sit, muse, meditate, consider the cross. Put yourself in the shadow. Stay there until you have contemplated your unworthiness. And you're driven then. It's a natural move of your heart to seek God. There's something of this in the illustration given. Because, if, again, if you look at Luke 11, verse 6, A friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. I have nothing. Here's a man who knows he has nothing. He's aware he has nothing. And we need help here. 
Our natural tendency is to imagine we have something. I have something. I can get through today. I, I can manage it. No, I have the strength. I have the ability to... I've done this before. I'm going to work. I've worked here for 14 years and I've done this. You know, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this. There's a sense of the, on the natural tendency to imagine we can do it. And we need to be brought back to the sense that we can't. We have nothing. We don't have anything. What does a parent need to be aware of when he's thinking about the conversion of their children, the burden of our children walking with God? What's the key? The key is this. You have nothing. You have nothing. You can't save them. You can't regenerate them. All the best efforts, everything you do, I mean, even all the spiritual disciplines, reading with them in the morning and praying with them in the evening and all the rest of it and everything that you do, doing all of that, will not save them. So if I imagine that all these things, these, these little things that I can do, are going to contribute something, then I don't know I have nothing. I think I have something. I have these exercises. I have these disciplines. And I look and I say, I've been very good. I've been consistent here. I'm doing well. And we imagine then that the outcome is, here we are, we input this, out comes that. The Christian parent, and I, I know I've said this, but I, I try to say it in all different ways, in different passages, because this, this will break my heart. It will break my heart if parents here in this congregation begin to imagine that because you input something, that the output is godly children. You have nothing to input. You don't have any bread. You have nothing. You have nothing. So you get before the cross with your nothingness and with your emptiness. And you beg. You beg. And because Christ is crucified and shed His blood and risen from the dead, you're filled with hope and you keep on there praying, please Lord, save them. This is your only hope. So this, so prayer is an exercise in which the cross is crucial. It's crucial. <laughs> Are we getting it? It's crucial. Because if you read Luke 11, you say, I'm going to try harder. You will fail miserably. And you'll say to yourself, what did I do wrong? I've, I've had people come to me. I, I've, I've, I've ministered to people where they've said literally these words. I did everything I was supposed to do. I did everything I was supposed to do. And they're amazed. What went wrong? You, you, you can't do anything. Your best effort, your most fervent effort in prayer or anything else cannot... Cannot produce an end product. Can't. So we, we sit at the cross. We stay there until we realize that's the only hope. And that moves us to keep on, which brings us then, thirdly, that it is an exercise in which persistence is encouraged. It is an exercise in which persistence is encouraged. 
Perhaps the key word here is verse 8. Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Importunity. It's an old word. It means simply shameless persistence. Shameless persistence. Christ encourages in this illustration given here, he encourages his people to have a shameless persistence. They are to be aware of their nothingness. Verse 5, I have nothing. That's what you do. You come in prayer and you say, I have nothing. As you come, you pray. The kind of commencement of your prayer or some early part of your praying should reflect something. You don't necessarily have to say, I have nothing. But it should reflect that in some fashion. Right? You don't have righteousness to approach unto God. You don't have means to prevail against God to force Him to hear you by your own merit. There's, there's something emanating from your prayer that signals clearly, you understand, I have nothing. But you're going to persist. You're going to exercise shameless persistence driven by your emptiness. The man that has nothing to eat doesn't give up seeking for food. The man that has no water doesn't quit looking until he's incapable of continuing. He keeps on. His life depends on it. And this is the way the Lord is encouraging us. Basically, if importunity is, is another way of saying kind of in real simple street type language he's being really annoying right he's being really annoying the guy is annoying i mean you know we don't we are delivered in the modern era by the fact that if i need bread there's probably some gas station open where i can go and get bread i don't have to annoy you Someone comes to me at midnight, I don't have to go to you to midnight, at midnight to f- try and find something to eat. But this is, this is the sense of it. Yet because of his importunity, because of his shameless persistence, because of, I don't know, maybe you've met someone like that. <laughs> I don't, maybe a salesperson has come to your door, doesn't seem to take no for an answer. And you almost have to be rude to drive them away. Well, it's that kind of a spirit that is being encouraged here. Importunity, shameless persistence. And Christ is encouraging. If I can be, if I can say this as reverently as possible, Christ is saying, annoy God with your burdens. Annoy God with your burdens. This is driven home by verses 9 through 11. I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be open. That is the sense of it. It's, it's just this ongoing asking. It's not just ask once. Keep on asking, and it will be given. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it shall be 
opened. And of course, you, you have that's correlating with the illustration that has just been given. What does he do? He comes and he asks, and he seeks, and he knocks, and he keeps on. He won't give up. The asking, seeking, knock, knocking correlate with the illustration Christ has just given, which basically means he keeps doing everything he can until he gets what he needs. And of course, the glorious thing is that the answer that comes is exceeding abundant above what he could ask or think, because he asks for three, and he says he gives as many as he needeth. Just take it. Go. Here you are. Open, opens up the door, gets them in, opens up wherever he keeps the bread. He says, come on, just, just take whatever you need and get out of here. And that, that's the kind of picture. It's, it's the picture that the Lord is presenting. But what is annoying to friends is precious to the Father. What is annoying to friends is precious to the Father. He wants you to keep coming. And it may appear annoying, but he is encouraging that. Just keep coming. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up. This is the verbs here, ask, seek, and not, they're in the continuous, the sense of continuous action. Keep on doing it. Keep beseeching God. Don't give up. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. I was reading this the other day. Just struck by it. And verse, verse 11, of course, is well known to many. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me. And I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So, God has an intention here, and he's not, yes, he's going to sovereignly bring it to pass, but the means again, the means, there, there are going to be people who will pray leading up to it, right? People, people that he will move to pray. He will cause them to feel the need to pray. He says, ye shall call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. But when you're seeking, it's there's a manifestation of searching for me with all your heart. It's like the language gives a sense of not letting go. It's persistence. Persistence. There will be a remnant. There will be a remnant leading up to the end of the 70 years who will be persistently praying. And they will have passages that encourage them. That's what Daniel was encouraged by. He's encouraged reading Jeremiah. 
And reading Jeremiah, what does it do? It motivates him and encourages him. Bring to pass what you promised, Lord. And so he keeps weeping and seeking and fasting and praying, and he's persistent seeking the Lord. Beloved, this is the same, this is the same thing that the Lord Jesus is encouraging in you. He wants you to pray this way. He doesn't want us. This is part of our problem. We have so much prosperity that sometimes we don't understand our nothingness. Like, we have nothing. We have nothing. But I want, I want you to th- think of this. I want you to imagine just for a moment about the greatest burdens you possess. Now, what are they? I hope, I hope they relate to the kingdom. I trust they do. I trust they are some way kingdom related. Now, it's not that you can't pray for your daily bread, and certainly that's encouraged here. But do you have loved ones without Christ? Do you? Other people in your family, children, spouse, parents, neighbors, friends, others that are upon your heart, this is the thing. We have have real burdens here. And they far exceed the need for bread for our friends. And yet still, still, we won't persist. And the reason is simple. We just aren't under the cross. What was it that gave, motivated, drove the early church to pray? It was the fact that they were just on the back of the death and resurrection of Christ. These same people who Christ has to admonish, admonish, watch, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not do that? Are you incapable? And then a few days later, really, just, just weeks later, they are, they are waiting and waiting in persistent hope. They are waiting. God sends answers like you would not believe. These men turn the world upside down. Why? They didn't give up. Let me ask you what's the burden of your heart? The real heaviness of your soul. The response to the passage is simple. Don't give up. I hear the response come back. What about Paul? Did he not have a thorn in the flesh? And he prayed three times and then left it? Yes. He had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times. And then the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient. That's so why he knew to let off. But unless you know, unless you know that the burden of your heart and life, God has said, no, not interested in intervening there. Have no intention of showing my glory and power in that area. 
unless you know, oh Christian, persist. Persist. Don't give up. Persist. Come every day. I have nothing. I can't affect any change. I can't save the soul. I can't change the life. I can't make them listen. I can't do anything here. Nothing. But you persist. You persist. And you know him. You know him. You know the Lord. I say that just trying to, because I think that language helps kind of cut through. So you get it. That's what the Lord's saying. It's not annoying to the Lord. Don't get me wrong. It's not. It's un- but that's the kind of thing. If you were to be annoying to someone, if you really be annoying, that kind of persistence that aggravates and upsets, that's what the Lord is saying. You come at midnight. You come at inappropriate seasons, and the natural person wants you just to go away. Your God is not put off by it. He doesn't slumber. He's not like your friends. He's your father. And he wills you. He encourages you. He invites you. Oh, persist. Persist. I seek not. I seek not. I seek not. Don't give up. Persistence proves the importance of the need. When we don't persist, we are communicating that we have failed to comprehend the importance of the need. I have a lost son. It's like the Lord says, I don't believe that you think it's important until you show it by this kind of shameless persistence. You say, why would he do that? There are all sorts of reasons why, many of which perhaps I have no understanding. He is always perfecting perfecting that which concerns us. He is always ordering our steps. He is always sovereignly working. But there is a certain sense in which he is teaching us that this isn't some, God's not some mystical genie. And the persistence reflects the position. You're subordinate. You're begging. And your persistence towards Him. And the time that may extend between the requests and the answer. Reminds you, he's in control, not you. There are some of you here tonight, and you have zero interest in praying this way. You don't even have the desire. And you don't have the desire because you've never been to the cross, you've never looked upon Christ, and you have no motivation for things that relate to the kingdom. You are unregenerate and you need to be born again.
you need to be born again. Because a child of God here tonight, though we all confess our failure here, there's a principle, there is life that says, I know it, I want it, dear Lord Jesus, help me in this. But to you, to you, that have no, it doesn't resonate at all. I can't sell this to you. The Son of God can't sell it to you because you are not saved. The Lord of mercy. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're here and you're not saved and you need help, you have questions, doubts and fears, the Lord Jesus is the one you need to go to. But sometimes we need a little help along the way. We need a Philip to come up and talk with us through the Scriptures. And if I can be that for you tonight, Please let me know. God, we pray. Thou wilt help us in this area. We ask, Lord, that amidst our prosperity we might learn that we have no bread. I have nothing. God, if we remember nothing when we wake up, please help us to remember this. I have nothing. I need the help of God today. I pray that this congregation would be that the spirit of our emptiness in and of ourselves would would be very evident. We're not trying to impress the God of heaven. We're coming as beggars needing help, yet as children knowing that we have a Father who, as we shall see, is more than willing to give good gifts to His people. God bless our prayer meetings in this place and help thy people in their homes to persist in prayer. Give the measure of grace needed to every man. Have mercy on those unsaved. Bless the fellowship of thy people as we talk among ourselves here and those that may go to the fellowship hall. Be with us all. Bless the food provided. Help us to eat and to drink to thy glory. Go with us through the rest of the week. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.